If you have a Bible with you, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Failure in leadership will doom any entity that depends upon that leadership. We have all seen this in action. We've heard of the difficulties that that organizations, schools, and countries have when leadership goes down, whether it's a coach in sports or whether it's politicians and how they lead their country or CEOs and the way that they handle their business. We have seen and many of us experience the fact that poor leadership will doom an organization that relies upon it. But even if we talk about countries and we talk about businesses and we talk about schools or or any sort of club, all of these things, no matter how important they might be, are nothing but mortal institutions. They are institutions that are here for a moment and they flower and then they will die. And in saying that, we're not trying to minimize the chaos, the poverty, and the destruction that comes from these places of poor leadership. We don't have to think much past Syria and North Korea to see the kind of devastation that is wrought in those places when leadership does not look out for the best of its people. No matter how devastating those places might be, we should know very well that leadership within God's church is all the more important because we are not dealing with temporal issues. We're not just dealing with things that are here one day and gone the next. We are dealing with eternity. We are dealing with lives and people that will go on for eternity, either in a state of bliss with Jesus Christ our Lord or condemned forever for a lack of faith. And yet even as we call this important, we can look around our own denomination, we can look around at our own churches, and we can see a lack of right and good leadership everywhere. You can look at many testimonies of former Southern Baptists, even current Southern Baptists. You can look at the testimonies of current and former Catholic and see the devastation that poor leadership has on people's faith. It ruins it. It crushes it. Sometimes it, it will drive people away from the faith forever. Sometimes it just undermines the authority of the Bible because it undermines the authority of those who wield the Bible. Other times it simply drives them away from the church doomed to stay away from the grace of the people of God. No matter what it does, it is devastating. So all the more as we think through what leadership in the church looks like, what it looks like from elders and what it looks like from deacons, all the more ought we to consider the importance of this, not just for people like me. I'm up here and I do my eldering and I I go through the motions every week and I hope that it's beneficial and I study this because I want to know that I follow and fall under these qualifications. But even if you're not an elder, and even if you're not a deacon, your service in this church matters, and your knowledge of this stuff matters, because you can't know what I'm supposed to be like unless you know 1 Timothy chapter 3. So it's important for you to hold me accountable as I lead the church, to hold Richard accountable as he leads the church, to hold the deacons accountable to who they ought to be. So today, let us read 1 Timothy 3, these first 13 verses, and think about what a good leader looks like in the church. Read with me in 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, 
so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also a great confidence that is in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. This is the word of our God. Let's first consider elders and the function and the role of elders. A couple of notes before we actually get into what Paul has to say about elders. You'll notice that the ESV here translates the words that I'm going to talk about as elder, as overseer. Sometimes we talk about this position of pastor. Even in the footnote, it says also it could be bishop or presbyter. Okay. Now, different people handle that in different ways. I am very, very convinced that all of those terminologies, whether it's bishop, whether it's overseer, whether it's elder, whether it's pastor, are referring all completely and totally to the exact same office, okay? So for instance, you can call me Pastor Doug, you can call me Elder Doug. Well, typically people don't call me Elder Doug because we had a Doug in this church who was much older than me, and he is, he's actually going to be here next week. We're glad to have him back, and by much older, I mean like three years, which is basically like five, which in Doug years is like 10. So because of that, they don't call me elder much, but you could call me elder. You can call me elder Doug. You can call me, frankly, you can just call me Doug. That's fine. You don't have to call me pastor. But nevertheless, all of those terms refer to the exact same phenomenon, the exact same function within the church. The other thing that I want to point out to you is Paul's insistence that if you aspire to it, if you desire it, it is a noble task. Now, some people, no doubt, desire to be put as an elder because they think that they can wield power, or they want to be a preacher because they think that it looks easier, it's a nice way to make a living, or something along those lines. Anything but the noble task that Paul is putting forward here. But at the very least, Paul thinks that we can weed out people like that if we follow these qualifications, and the ones who are left desire a noble task. It is a good thing to want to lead God's people, and it's a better thing to do it well. So friends, let's look at what this noble task takes. So what are we to look for in elders? The first thing we're going to talk about are these listings of virtue. We're going to look at three different things to see in elders. And the first one is virtue. Paul begins this by saying he must be above reproach. I want to affirm in the strongest words possible that above reproach does not mean sinless, lest you think that I am already disqualified. Okay, That's not what above reproach means. What Paul means is that when you look at his life and you look at these lists, the the list of characteristics and virtues that come after it, you shouldn't look at this list and say, well, there is clearly a problem with that guy, right? That if he does have sin issues that he's working on them or they they have been so eliminated that when you look at him, you don't know that he is having problems with that. You don't get to say something like, well, Carl would make an excellent elder if not for his, his overwhelming temper, right? Like that is an immediate disqualification for the eldership. If you say, geez, Carl would be great if not for that huge drinking problem. Well, that is a clear demonstration that he is not to be an elder. He is not above reproach. If you can reproach him for something and do it legitimately, then he is not to be here. It doesn't mean that he doesn't struggle with some of the things that are on this list. It doesn't mean that he doesn't fall time after time when it comes to leading his family perfectly. We would expect some of that, but there can't be obvious moral failures in these categories. 
And frankly, we ought to be very clear about something else. If anyone comes to the office of elder and assumes that when he looks at this list, he not only biblically qualifies, which every elder ought to think, but he exemplifies everything that is on this list to perfection, that is a clear indication to me that he does not belong as a pastor. No one who thinks that he has perfected these qualities probably has the maturity to stand in front of people and to lead them in Christ. Paul says that we are to be above reproach. Another way of thinking about this is we ought to be the kind of people who can stand in front of a room of people and say with the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. To mean it and to fall back on those words as something that you live your life by. The first virtue is that they be above reproach. And I think what that means then for the context here is that above reproach is the head of everything else that follows. They've got to kind of match everything else that comes from that. The second thing is that he is a one-woman man. This is translated as the husband of one wife in the ESV. What a lot of churches have done then have looked at this and they said, well, listen, what this is actually referring to is divorce. And so because of that, if any man at any point in time for any reason has undergone divorce, he is immediately disqualified from being an elder. And I want to tell you, I just have a hard time believing that's what it means. First, Paul easily could have said divorced people can't serve as elders, but he didn't do that. The actual wording of it is a one-woman man, and that's important because the focus is on the one bit. He's in a culture where polygamy is wild. It is all over the place. And so when he looks at the people who are going to lead the church, he says polygamy is right out. You are to have one wife. The other problems that I have with this sort of interpretation that says divorced people can't serve as elders is because a lot of those churches have no nuance for when the divorce happens or why the divorce happens. If the divorce happens when he's 22 and he becomes a Christian at 25, it is beyond me as to why we hold up that sin as disqualifying him for the eldership or for pastorship. I wouldn't want that to be held me. Listen, in high school, I was kicked out of two, two golf tournaments for anger. I have deposited more than one club in the Titabawasi River. If, if that disqualifies me because I was an angry young man at 15 years old, then you can then also go through and, and get everybody else who doesn't fight these, these qualifications for the entirety of their lives and say they're kicked out and we have no elders at all, okay? So the, when the divorce happens matters. It also matters the situation around the divorce. When Paul talks about divorce, divorce in that day and age was a one-sided affair. It came from the man, and he could divorce a woman anytime he so chose. In, in our day and age, it doesn't work like that. You can be divorced by your wife at just about any point in time for just about anything. And so you can be a godly man seeking to live life in a difficult marriage, struggling and straining with it, and still undergo a divorce, which I don't feel like in any way, shape, or form would disqualify you from these things. What Paul is stressing is that because elders are examples of what the church should look like in its individual state, so their marriages should look like the example of Christ and his church. There is one Lord and Savior. There is one ultimate church. She is his bride, as Paul mentions in Ephesians 5. This is a great mystery, but nevertheless, this is exactly how we should view it. And so an elder should only have one wife, just as Christ only has one wife, the true and living church. He is a one-woman man. Third, he is to be sober-minded. Not just sober like not drunk all the time, 
but sober-minded, that his mind isn't to be muddied and, and foggy. And sure, there are times when all of us are going to go through those situations when we've got frustrations here and there's difficulties there, we're not getting enough sleep, and so you're, you're not thinking as clearly as you ought to about categories or about a situation that you were in. But what the, the statement really means is that you generally have clear thoughts. Your mind isn't kind of fuddled when it comes to dealing with the straightforward application of God's word, that you're not questioning it all the time, that you have focus and clarity when it comes to it. We're not talking about the ability of these people to be scholars. We know that they don't have to know all of the ins and outs of the incredibly deep things of God, but rather that they have the ability to know God's word and to rightly apply it with good judgment to situations that are in front of them. That is what being sober-minded means. Fourthly, they are to be self-controlled. Elders or pastors must be able and willing to forego certain rights in order to help the church. It doesn't mean that they always abstain from them. It doesn't mean that they always don't engage in that activity or do that thing. But it does mean that they have the control to abstain from certain things, whether they're good things or especially if they're bad things, in order to help the church. For elders, frankly, this comes out more than ever in the use of the tongue. How they speak and how they talk about their church members to other elders. How they talk to people out in the world. This applies directly to them because in the book of James, where we have one of the longest passages of scripture dealing with the tongue, James talks at first not about the tongue, but about teachers when he says this in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Then he goes on to talk about how the tongue cannot be tamed, how, how if you can control your tongue, you can control every part of your life. He says this, beginning in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not be so. You should not be a teacher because you can't control your tongue. Elders have to be people who know how to shut their mouths. And when they open them to speak rightly, they need to be self-controlled. Fifthly, they need to be respectable. And while we will return to this at the end, nevertheless, it simply means that they are well looked upon. There's not these glaring faults, so there's not anything in them that makes them in, in any way, shape, or form sort of disrespectable. Sixth, they are to be hospitable. If you were to make a list of the qualities that elders are supposed to have that are listed in the Bible, and the one that is talked about and thought about the least, hospitable is number one with an absolute bullet. This means that they have to be the kind of people who are to open up their house and to make themselves available for people. If you desire to have a private life, if you desire to be enclosed and you say, this is, this is my domain and no one is, this isn't up for you, this is my, like, this, then the eldership is not for you. Being a pastor, it isn't for you. 
You are to be hospitable. You're to have a house where you can invite people and where they are welcome. You have to have a life that is sort of open, that people can inspect it. After all, if they're not allowed to inspect it, I don't know how they're supposed to figure out if you actually fulfill the elements of an elder. They have to be hospitable. Any elder who says, listen, this is my, this is my time. Uh, you know, once, once I get home at 6 o'clock, the, uh, the phone goes off, and it's not, it's not your time. That's my time. It's fine. Listen, are you going on a date with your wife? That's fine. Every once in a while on vacation, that's fine as well. There are other people who can handle this. They don't have to be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the day they die. But they do have to be hospitable. They need to be able to teach. They need to be able to know doctrine and to communicate it well. They not only need to understand the deep things of God, to study the deep things of God, to be able to lay out doctrine. I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to hear pastors downplay doctrine. What do we need them for if not to teach? What are they teaching if not doctrine? It, it really confuses me. I, I honestly don't know. What, this is the reason why people say that pastors only work one day a week, that day of the week, tends to be Sunday. The reason why they think that is because their pastors don't study doctrine and you're left wondering, well, what are they doing all day? Listen, doctrine is made to be taught. It's made to be preached because good praxis, good practice flows out of good doctrine. You can't ever have good application and good practice without knowing why you ought to live those ways. Even as pastor just got done reading, why, ought we ought, why should we love one another? It flows directly from the fact that God has loved us. And how has he loved us? He's loved us in the cross. Like, behind every action that we are to take, behind every action the Bible implores for us to take, is doctrine. So know doctrine and teach it well. The idea of being an able teacher is simply one that you are able to take what you know and put it into words and place it before people. You can communicate it. He is not just to be a teacher, though. He should also be not addicted to wine. Not just sober-minded, but in verse 3, Paul says, not a drunkard. Again, the focus here is on control, not abstinence. He doesn't say he is not to drink. It says he is not to be a drunkard. Needless to say, one cannot be a trustworthy pastor if that pastor is continuously getting drunk or is high on other substances. Being drunk and high leads to a loss of control, which will inevitably lead to muddled thought, a loss of respect out in the community, to pain in their marriage, and a number of other things that cannot ever be followed through if you are a pastor. Ninth, the pastor must be gentle. So many churches want pastors who will stand for the truth. Well, they want pastors who will have spittle-flecked sermons and they will pound the pulpit and they will speak most of the time through clenched teeth, like when your children have done something really bad. They want that. They feel like that's in the South, which we're not, but in the South they call that shucking the corn. I have no idea why. They don't even have corn in the South, but that's what they call it. Churches tend to want pastors who are like that. But listen, at no point in time does Paul say what we need is men who are in the pulpit who have incredibly hard noses for the truth or who command good practice from their people, who rule churches with an iron fist. What he says is what you need from an elder is somebody who is gentle, who will lead sheep rightly back into the way, who, like Christ, will not break broken and bent reeds, but will help put them back together. A pastor is never 
ever to be somebody who is filled with anger and frustration. He is to be somebody who is gentle and leads his people gently. If hospitable is the most overlooked characteristic, I'm telling you, gentle is a close, close second. Furthermore, they're not to be quarrelsome. They don't pick fights simply to pick fights. What is intended by this is not somebody who is, who is willing to stand up for what is true and what is good and what is right. We are not to be quarrelsome, but that doesn't mean we don't stand up for the truth. It doesn't mean we don't wield the sword of the word of God. It doesn't mean we don't fight, but it means we know what we're fighting for. And it means that third order things are not worth fighting for. We don't make a big deal out of. So many pastors do this. They fight for certain interpretations of certain things, which are third or fourth order of importance. You want to fight me over the Trinity? I'll fight you over the Trinity. You want to fight me about baptism? We'll have a really good conversation. You want to fight me about whether the KJV ought to be the only red translation? I'm going to shrug and ask that we just not bring it up again. Because, friends, it's just not worth it. And you can say, hey, if it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. Paul didn't read the King James. King James probably didn't even read the King James. It's not worth fighting about. You want to read the King James? Don't read the ESV? I'm fine with that. Have at it. Open it up. Do your these and thous and have a really, really good time of studying the word of God. But if you want me to quarrel about it, I'm not going to. This is the idea. It's not that pastors are unwilling to fight for what is right. It's that they know what to fight for and they know what to drop. That's what it means to not be quarrelsome. And last, they can't be money-loving. Paul's going to go on to say in chapter 5 that pastors are worthy when they lead well of having a double honor paid to them. That certainly, in, I, I just don't know any way around it, given the way that he is talking there, that certainly means monetarily. They're they deserving of a good wage. They're deserving of a double honor. But that honor is to come from the sheep. That honor is never demanded from them. What you end up with, with pastors who are overly concerned with how much they make and making sure that every cent they get that they deserve, is you get people who are no longer looking out for the sheep, but people who see the sheep only as something to wring out, to shave down, and to eat the meat off of so that they can be well-fed. Such a person will never, ever be in a position to actually lead the church of God. You're not supposed to muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain, and that's okay. But if the ox loves the, the grain so much, he will forget to tread out any of it. And you won't have the word. What you'll have is a man who is working simply to make a buck. That is not an elder. The characteristics that we find here are found repeated for us in other places, but these are the characteristics of a man of God who is qualified to be an elder, but that's not it. We also have another thing to look for, not just virtue in an elder, but leadership in an elder. And typically what I find is when I hear churches who are looking for putting together pastor search committee resumes and what they're looking for in a pastor, they are, a lot of them, looking for a pastor who fulfills these qualifications, but on top of that has experience maybe in the business world. He, he's a good leader when it comes to business, or he, he understands politics and he's shown leadership in the politics or in education or in the military. He's somebody who, who is quite inspiring to other people. And they've shown and demonstrated that leadership. There is a pastor at a church in our area who has on his bio, for some strange reason, the fact that he studied comedy under Amy Poehler. That's awesome. I, I'm being serious. That's kind of awesome. 
I have no idea what that does for you as a pastor. So your jokes are better than mine. That doesn't build anybody up. And it has, frankly, absolute, not all of them are better. <laughs> but it has absolutely nothing to do with what it takes to lead a church. And I'm not even saying that he thinks that it has something to do with what it takes to lead a church. I just don't know why anyone would write that down. What does that have to do with you being a pastor? What churches are looking for is leadership in the world like they think the church ought to be led, like a CEO would lead it, or like a military man would lead it, or like somebody who inspires others might lead it. But that's not the kind of leadership that Paul holds out for. He talks about leadership here and leadership within a house. That's the kind of leadership he's looking for. How do you know if a man is well-equipped to lead a church? You don't look at the other churches he's led. You don't look at the other organizations that he's led. You don't look at his track record in business. You look at his family. That is how you know whether or not he is equipped to lead the church. What does he say? He must manage his own household well. That word manage can also mean lead. He must lead his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The emphasis is on his parenting. Not keeping the children submissive, meaning that he continually beats them down until they do what he says. Because he's got to lead them with dignity. Paul loves balance, and he's incredibly balanced here. You don't get to rule over them with an iron fist. The idea of him being gentle no doubt applies to the way he handles his kids. The idea here, and that he is supposed to be somebody who promotes discipline within his family who makes his children submissive is simply the fact that he does not allow himself or his wife to be rolled over. That when they say yes, they mean yes. When they say no, they mean no. You don't say no, and then Billy asks again, and you say no, and Billy asks again and says no, and then eventually they wear you down until you say, okay, Billy, you can have your bike. That is not what Paul is getting at. What Paul says is that when you are submitting your kids. When you're making them submit to you, all you're doing is this. I am dad, and I have told you no, and I mean no. Okay? I think this is incredibly important because a man who, for lack of a backbone, is willing to give in to his kids every desire, whether it's good for them or not, will also do it with sinners. And that is a recipe for abject disaster within a church. If you give all of the squeaky wheels grease, regardless of what they're asking for, if you decide that you're going to be the kind of person who's going to tickle the ears of people and give them what they want, you are not qualified to be an elder. This is why this is the, the leadership qualities he has. Because God's church is not run like a business. God's church is not run like an organization or a club. God's church is not run like a team. God's church is run like a family. Because that's what it is. The leadership that we are to show is not based on our experience in boardrooms or in classrooms. It is based on your experience in the living room. That is the kind of leader that God wants. The third thing that we need to look for in elders is protection. Paul warns against having a new convert be an elder. He says he'll get puffed up. It's very easy to get puffed up as an elder. You seem to be really important. You stand in front of people every once in a while and you tell them what they ought to believe. People tend to look up at you for absolutely no reason at all. It's easy to think, haven't I done well? Don't I know a lot? Aren't I important? New converts are especially prone to this. 
It's almost like Paul is saying, there is the working of time in the life of believers that helps to humble them. That over time, the work of the Spirit, over time, the work of the Word, over time, the work of the saints upon somebody builds in them an understanding that they are not the center of the universe, that God's work can go on without them. God tends to humble men over time. And what that does is it, it, it gets you to understand that you provide very, very little to people. I can't tell you how little I provide to you that's not already in the word of God. Basically, it's just those jokes, and there's a guy down the road who clearly does it better than me. The word of God is everything, and so you have to be humble because there's nothing here. There's, there's nothing that I'm giving you that you can't get from somewhere else, and you can't get better than somewhere else. It's, it's a humbling thing to know who I am and to know what I get to proclaim. When I was younger, I didn't get that. And it's very easy for young people, especially young converts especially, to get puffed up. And Paul says, you can't do that. That will lead them astray into the condemnation of the devil. What he means by that is not that you will befall the same condemnation the devil had in pride, which is true, but the condemnation that the devil has waiting for you. He wants to accuse you of it. He wants to look and say, listen, they're just like every other leader in the world. They're filled with pride. They're filled with arrogance. That's exactly what they're like. And Paul says, you need to hold back on those new converts. No matter how, how gifted they might seem, hold back on them and allow them maturity and humility. Secondly, they must be thought of well by outsiders. We have to put here that they can't be thought of well in every way. We are going to say things and we're going to have to say things that are going to put outside people off. They're not going to like it. But what Paul means is that they're not the kind of people the outsiders would look down on for reasons that they shouldn't look down on them for. Pastors should generally be known not to be angry, insolent, pugnacious, bullheaded, duplicitous, spiteful. We should have the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because against such things there is no law. That's the kind of people we would be. And even if people in the outside world look down on us for some of the views that we hold, they can at least, in personal interactions, respect us for who we are. All in all, friend, these characteristics are not unknown in the rest of Scripture. The words that are used here are actually fairly rare. But almost every single one of them occurs elsewhere. And it occurs elsewhere in reference to characters and in reference to virtues that normal people are supposed to have in their lives. To be above reproach is listed in 1 Timothy 5.7 of widows. To be sober-minded in Titus 2.2 of older men. To be self-controlled, Titus 2.15. Respectable, 1 Timothy 2.9, talking about the clothing that women are supposed to wear. Gentle for everyone in Philippians 4.5. Not given to much wine, Ephesians 5.18. You are not to be drunk. You are not to be quarrelsome, Titus 3.1. You are to be generous, Hebrews 13.5. You are to have, be good, godly parents, instructing your children in the admonition of the Lord in Ephesians 5. All of these characteristics, then, are not part of a race of special people who have been set aside from before the foundation of the world that they might be pastors. That's not it. Pastors are not special in any way. They're simply godly men who have the ability to teach. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. They're not super holy people. My wife will tell you. She probably wouldn't because she's really kind, but she knows it. 
what this does is it makes me look out on the men who are here who are members of this church and say, in five years, can you give me a good reason why you wouldn't be an elder? Perhaps you don't have the ability to teach. Fair. Fair. But how are you going to know? Why is it that you would not pursue being an elder? What would keep you from being an elder? Is it that you don't want to be the things on this list? Come and see me. We need to talk. Every man in this room who is a member of this church ought to be pursuing the qualities of an elder as hard as he possibly can. These are the virtues of a good, godly Christian man. And that is it. Furthermore, you should hold these up as qualifications for me and for Richard, and you should do so continually. You should be praying for us about these things. It is the duty of the church to support their pastors as the pastors try to lead the church. But we need to move on. Let's go on to deacons. This part will be much shorter. We will cut off a little bit. Deacons are different, and they're different in a couple of ways. First, they are not to rule, and they are not to teach. It doesn't mean that they can't teach. Some deacons in our, our uh, midst do a good job of teaching, and they should, but they are not tasked with teaching. It is not a mandatory thing like it is with elders, and they are to serve. Many of you know, and you've read somewhere before, the word deacon simply means serving in the Greek, okay? So they are simply servants of God. They are servants of the church. That's all they're supposed to do. The fuzzy lines of what deacons are there for is kind of set up in Acts chapter 6. When the apostles find out that something's going wrong with the daily distribution of bread and people are going hungry and they say, listen, it's not right for us to stop ministering in the word to take care of all these issues. And it's not, they're not saying that these issues are unimportant because they turn around and they say, you pick seven extraordinarily godly men and you set them to the task, okay? It's simply the fact that there is service, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen in a church and the elders can't handle all of it. And so we need help and aid because we are mere humans and deacons are there to handle the service that goes out amongst the church. So they are not to rule or teach, they are simply to serve, and that makes them different. But you can tell from the list that we have here that there's a great deal of similarity in them as well. Paul even begins by saying deacons likewise, meaning deacons should be a lot like elders in their quality of character. The kind of virtues that are built into elders are the kind of virtues that are built into deacons. They are to be not addicted to much wine. They're not to be double-tongued. They're supposed to be dignified, not greedy for dishonest gain. All that basically is coming right off of what he has already said about elders. While elders will lead both with example and with word, deacons lead primarily by example. And so it's not that they don't have any leadership qualities. They have to have a number of leadership qualities, but they lead by example, by the way that they have lived their lives. So, most of the qualities that you would find and want for an elder should also be present in deacons. Deacons, what this means for you is can you stand with Paul and say, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ? Because you probably should be able to do that. You should be able to overhear somebody talking to me saying, oh, I, I just did what I saw that deacon do and not get that twinge of, oh man, did they catch me, right? But think, I hope that that's good. Now, I think that if I overheard somebody saying, I just did what Pastor Doug did, my first thought would be, uh, I hope that's good. But in the end, my conscience is pretty clean that it would be. 
For deacons, that must be how you live as well. You must live as an example for everyone else so that if people imitated the way you handled yourself in this building, the way you handled yourself around the people of God, they would be in a better position a year from now than they are currently. There are two glaring differences. First, in teaching. Elders are to teach. Deacons are simply to hold to the mystery of the faith. The mystery simply means here is something that God has revealed that he had not revealed before, that if God had not revealed it, you would not have known of it. And that is indeed nothing else than the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you are to hold to the mystery of the faith, that is, that your faith in Christ because of what he has done on the cross in taking your sins and in wholly paying for them and being justified by being risen from the grave and standing on the right hand of the Father eternal God of eternal God. That that mystery is now what you hold to. That you hold to all of the facets of the gospel and all of the things that make the gospel the gospel, you hold to them. You don't have to teach it publicly and you can't teach it with authority. But you can't deny it. It doesn't mean you have to know all elders need to know when it comes to justification and it comes to the polity of the church and when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, but it does mean that you cannot deny those good things that have been passed down to you and the, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And you must do it with a clear conscience. You can't be the kind of person that when people start talking about the Trinity, you have that guy in the back of your head that kind of clears his throat and says, <clears throat> well, maybe. I just kind of struggle with that. What Paul means here is that there shouldn't be wavering. You should be able to say, I affirm the Trinity and do it with a clear conscience. I affirm that Jesus Christ died for my sins and do it with a clear conscience. It doesn't mean that doubt can't happen, but it means if it's persistent doubt, it probably shouldn't happen amongst deacons. So the first bit is teaching. The second bit is women. Crossway has held, and we will continue to hold for reasons that I'm going to make hopefully very clear here in just a second, that women can and should serve as deacons. The translation that is in front of us is a rather unfortunate one because it says their wives in verse 11. Now, no matter how you translate that, you have to make interpretive issues. The Greek word that's being used here can mean both wife and woman, okay? It was used interchangeably. So in, in Greek, if you were to read it and it said your woman, that almost without a doubt means your wife, and it was just how they talked. The word here is just bare woman or bare wife. It just, it just stands on its own. What the ESV has done is given us sort of an interpretation of it. There's a number of problems that I have with it and a number of reasons why I think women should be allowed to serve as deacons. First is that fluid nature of the term. The term can mean wife and it can mean women. If it means wife here, then undoubtedly what it's saying is there are deacons who serve as men and their wives also have character qualities that they need to fulfill. If it simply says woman or women, then it means that women likewise who serve as deacons ought to have the same kind of character qualities that the men do. So the fluid nature of the term helps it. The lack of a possessive really helps it. And I'm gonna say this as clear as I possibly can. There's a there there that ain't be there. No, that's not good. There's a there there that shouldn't be there. The possessive isn't actually in the Greek. It, it's something that the ESV puts in to help translate, but it's not actually there. If it were there, it would undoubtedly be referring to wives, but because it's not there, there's a good reason to think that it's only referring to women. Third, as I've said before, the qualifications are basically the same. Why put qualifications on women if they're not able to serve as deacons? 
which is made all the more interesting because this is clearly under the heading for deacons and not the heading under elders. You would think that if there was going to be a woman that had to be held up to that standard, it would be the wife of an elder. But he lists no qualifications for the wife of an elder. Are we to think then that he is holding up qualifications for the wife of a deacon? As though deacons' wives have to be really on board with stuff, but elders' wives kind of. There's a good reason why I think in context, which is how we have to translate this, that Paul would mention women here. After all, in 1 Timothy 2.12, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, he said women are not allowed to preach or to teach and have authority over men. Which when we read then beginning in elders, when we start to talk about elders, it's clear that he's only going to be talking about men. Because he's only talking about men there, when he switches to deacons, even though the word deacon can apply both to women and to men, the context might suggest that he's only talking about men. Verse 11 then comes as a clarifying statement. I'm not just talking about men. I'm talking about men and women. Women can likewise serve as deacons, and they must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I think that it makes more sense to understand this as referring to women and their qualifications for serving as deacons. The last bit is that absolutely none of this goes against 1 Timothy 2.12. Deacons have no authority, whether over men or over women, and they do not teach. That is not their role. So because of that, there is no reason in my mind to keep women from serving the church as deacons, as we have done for a long time. The results of such service then are great. They gain a good standing for themselves in the house of God and before God. They're doing a good service and they will be recognized for it. There is honor that comes with serving well as a deacon. And what's more, there's great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. If you were to have a good, clear conscience in holding to the mystery of the faith, that conscience will only become all the more clear and all the more good as you stand firm in the faith. As you see God work through your service and the good that God can do through your service, it will build you up in the faith. It will make your faith stronger. In all of this, what we've laid out, frankly, could mean that we are left with sort of a motley crew of people serving and leading within the church. It does not need to be the best educated. It certainly doesn't need to be the people who have achieved the most in life. It is not those who the world would likely think should be in positions of authority, and especially positions of authority, amongst people and amongst an organization that claims eternal significance. But the gospel is never about the best of the world. The gospel was about sinners. And the truth of the matter is, we don't need world leaders. We have a great leader already. And what's more than that, we have a good shepherd already. He doesn't need world leaders. He needs people who are faithful to him. That's what he needs. That is what Paul is calling for here. He doesn't need people who have conquered nations. He doesn't need people who have led multi-million dollar businesses. He needs people who know what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to lead others to be faithful to Jesus Christ. So let elders be godly, mature Christian men who are capable, able, and willing to teach, leading their families and the church well and doing so with great humility. Let our deacons be humbly serving both out of love for the body of Christ and out of love for the word. And let us be the kind of people who support such offices out of our own indebtedness to Christ so that his work may be proclaimed with all faithfulness and sincerity to the lost and to the dying and that many might come to know him. The good organization and the good working of the church of God frees the gospel to work well in the world.
Let us have it do that. Let's pray. And Father, we are grateful for those who serve this church so well. You have been so faithful to us, not only as a church, but to individuals who lead and to serve in the church. And any honor that is given is due to your faithful, kind, and patient work in us. Yet we have so much more to do. Give us even more grace that your church may be purified and made to reach the fullness of the measure of Christ, that she might be a bride prepared for her husband. We pray these things for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen.